So this summer we've been preaching through the Psalms, and we do that for a couple of reasons. One is that so many people travel and are in and out that it makes it a lot easier when you can come in and, and pick up right where we left off without having to know what's happened since you were gone. Uh, but the other reason, and the more important reason, is that the Psalms are uh, just refreshing. Uh, so it's a joy to spend the summers in the Psalms. There's this, you know, you read these authors and you, you really see their, their humanness. You see their, their fears and you see their weaknesses. And um, you see the way that just the truth of who God is finds them wherever they are and lifts them up so that they're both like us. They're both challenged and refreshed. And we want that for, for you. We want that for all of us. Uh, and so this summer, we're, we're getting near the end. College students will be trickling in here in the next, uh, some today and some in the next two weeks. Uh, actually, they'd be a week late if they came in two weeks, wouldn't they? Uh, but next week, we got Psalm 130. Today, we're in Psalm 1, or no, not 1, just 36. So if you've got a Bible, find it, open up to Psalm 36, and we'll be reading there uh, in just a moment. Psalm 36, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and You give them drink from the river river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord, encourage us with the knowledge of your steadfast love this morning. May we find unrest if we are here this morning and we do not know you. May we find unrest so that you might call us to yourself. And may we find nourishing refreshment if we, if we do know you, Lord. We live our lives in the rock-solid shelter of, of your steadfast love for us in Christ. Lord, teach us from your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, contrasting. It's a way that uh, you've probably done in English at some point, whether elementary school or somewhere in advanced uh, college. Uh, there's contrasting. It's a simple way of comparing two things to better understand them. And it works by holding up one thing and comparing it to another thing that you're also holding up, either mentally or actually physically, and and really comparing how are these two objects different. And we tend to contrast things, you know, when they are similar, to notice the the nuances of of what is difference between these two. And one of the things we're going to see in our, our text today is that this is a text of contrast. There are two things 
being contrasted in our text. The, the initial, initial subject in our text is people who here in this word, this, this scripture, are described as wicked. And I think that leads us to, to assume then that, or to expect rather, that the other side of the contrast uh, is going to be good people, right? Wicked people and, and good people. But in this passage, wicked people are not contrasted by good people. Really, that, that makes sense if you think about it, because that'd be like contrasting uh, a horse with a unicorn. I mean, it, it can be done. It certainly can be done, but uh, only in theory, because there are no unicorns. They don't really exist, just like there are no good people in reality. And I know that sounds incredibly harsh, right? So let me remind you that uh, Jesus himself is the one who in Luke 18 says that no one is good except God alone. And so then this contrast in this psalm is, is not going to be between wicked people and, and those who are good, but between wicked people and God who is good. See, this passage begins then with this, this category of person I already mentioned as, as wicked. And so let's begin there too. It's, it's true, as I've already pointed out, that in some sense, or in a sense, all people are, are sinful. That should not be a, a question for us. But, you know, that's why Paul says to both the Jew and the Gentile in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even as we, we walk through life with, with faith in Jesus, we find ourselves in sin. And that's why we have this time in our service that we actually set apart for us to come and confess our sin. We're assuming it's the case for you every week. It's not... If by chance you sinned, we're assuming it's actually true of you. And so we do so both corporately and individually. However, in Psalm 36 here, the author is not speaking about the follower of Christ who, who struggles against his sin. But he's talking about the man or the woman who is given over to wickedness. Absolutely. In fact, these first four verses show this progression uh, into this deep wickedness. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that sin begins by, by speaking to his heart. And then the wicked action seems to, to promise, you know, pleasure without consequence. Or success and, and satisfaction that is obtained through some morally wrong actions. In fact, uh, believing this, this lie then, that, you know, the, the wicked chooses to sin because he wants to sin. He lusts because he wants what's not his. Or she steals because she cannot afford what she wants. Or they gossip because the information makes them feel superior in comparison. It's almost like a, a drug addict taking that first leap. Just a little. And when that first sinful action seems to go okay, it worked out alright. Then there's a bit more and a bit more. And then little by little he falls until he's absolutely devoted to, to sin and this full-blown wickedness. See, verse 1 ends by describing the wicked here, saying, There is no fear of God before his eyes. This is the verse that, that Paul will quote in his, letter, in his letter to the Romans later on. Um, and, and as he describes this, you know, this, this section, he's saying uh, why it is that both Jew and Gentile need Jesus to redeem them. That's, that's the context of that. But, but here, when we read this, you know, there's no fear of God before their eyes. It's impossible to, to read it outside of the, the comparison or the, the context of Proverbs 9.10 where we learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so then it's, it's easy for us to see that the opposite manner is, is also true, that the, the lack of fearing God is the pathway to wickedness. Now, 
Fear of God can be a really difficult concept to understand. Uh, I was thinking about this and trying to think of some way to compare this uh, for us to understand it, but, but just like the way that a daughter on her first date might fear her father is very different than the way her date might fear her father. Um, the shotgun in his hand might be the big difference. Uh, but really, you know, that's, that's because the date and the father, or sorry, the date and the daughter have a very different relationship with that father. One understands this as protection and caring in and, and, and a reverent way, and the other one understands it as a, a fear and a threat. Uh, with God, though, there is a, a fear uh, that can be understood in two ways. For, for some, they might fear God, and it be described as a sense of dread, not a love for God, but a dread. And, and also, others might fear God, and it be described as in the sense of reverence. Reverence is, is what's in mind here in Psalm 36. Any, anytime someone comes into this intimate presence of God, there is this, this humble, reverent fear of God. We see it all throughout the scripture. You probably remember Isaiah 6. I know I reference this a lot. I love it. Uh, but Isaiah sees the Lord. He has this vision of God uh, on the throne, and he just falls down in that moment. And you remember his words? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's reverence, reverent fear. The prophet Habakkuk also had a vision of, of God's might and his majesty, and he describes that moment when he, when he sees this. He says, I, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. He sees this vision of God and his knees just go weak. Or who can forget, you know, Peter. You know, we know all about Peter later on, but do you remember when he, when he first is introduced to Jesus, he gets this, this first glimpse of who Jesus actually is. He's out fishing with his friends and they fish all night and they caught nothing. And here's some guy on the shore telling them to let down their nets. They do so. And then they bring in so much fish that the boats are starting to sink. And in Luke 5:8, we read this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In that moment, that's the moment that Peter decides to leave absolutely everything in his life and, and follow Jesus. See, when we, when we really know the holiness of God, there is this, this a fear experience because suddenly we realize just how sinful we are and we realize just how holy he is and, and that gap between us just shakes us to the core. And so really, it shouldn't surprise us then that we read here that the wicked has no fear before God. And so if the wicked do not reverently fear God, how do they view God? Because I, I read that and I want to assume that they hate God, Right? But more often than not, it's not so much hatred as it is just indifference and apathy. We see this in verse 2, this rejection that they will ever be held accountable for their sins. Uh, this believing that God is so powerless that he's unable to judge them for their sin. It's, it's this image of, of seeing God and just shrugging. It, it may be... A rejection that God exists at all, but it also might just be simply that expression that says... God, you don't really matter. You just don't matter. This may also include self-centered flattery, where we, we conjure up our, our own concept of God, right? 
Some idea of God outside of the scripture so that, so that we no longer even acknowledge that our sin is sin. Uh, that they, we only think what, what they desire and, and how they feel. And, and there's this rejection of truth. I will create my own truth. We also see this in the first por- uh, see, that, see in this first portion that the wicked is, is arrogant and prideful and does not see how terrible his sin is, that, that she's dishonest and, and she is unwise and her actions are not good. That's what our text says. The wicked plans these evil things. It even talks about lying in bed. You can almost imagine it. You know, here's a time of, of rest and relaxation when so many are, are praying and thanking God for the day here, laying there, planning more evil to do. And finally, we're, we're told that the wicked does not reject evil. In Romans 1, God's word tells us about those who will not acknowledge God. Uh, how God has then given them over to themselves and, and included in that por- portion is this statement about this refusal to reject evil. In Romans 1.32, uh, it reads, Though they know God's righteous decree, so they have some knowledge of it, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who, who practice them. There is no rejection of evil when they see it. Listen, there is no neutrality to sin. We might think we're there at times, but there isn't. We're either growing to, to hate our sin and all sin more and more, or we are growing to be more and more okay with it, more indifferent to our sin. In our passage, we're seeing this, um, uh, this picture of what full-fledged Wickedness or descent into wickedness actually looks like. And so we're, we're looking at these verses, and it's almost like looking at Golem to see what devotion to the ring will end like, right? Or have you seen those, those creepy photos of um, the meth addict before and after, and you can hardly recognize the person? Uh, we're seeing that descent into that here. And so then as we move out of this portion in the next section, which starts in verse 5, as, as we move there, I want you to keep in mind then that this contrast is not between the wicked person and the good person because our minds are going to go back to the idea over and over again. It's a contrast between a good person and a good God. You see, heaven showing us, showing us then the attributes of the wicked, we're now going to see these attributes of, of God, some of the blessings that David has already received because God is God. And, and he begins by saying, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. To say that, that his love extends to the heavens is to say that God's love can't be measured. Right? You go out there, you can't even make sense out of the depth of, the, of that space. It, it has no bounds. And not just love, but you see that phrase, steadfast love. Because it's, it's translated from this, this Hebrew word, hesed, which is a, a covenantal word that, that appeals to God on the basis of his covenantal relationship with his people. It is solid because it is built upon God's covenantal faithfulness, which is the most secure love in the entire world. There's nothing more secure than that. It's like we're saying, oh God, you know that I'm sinful, but you have loved me according to your covenant, the covenant that you made, the covenant that you keep, and so you love me based upon your faithfulness to me. And the second attribute of God here is his faithfulness, very similar uh, again, not our faithfulness to God, but God's faithfulness to us. And what I find interesting here is that faithfulness presupposes that God has revealed himself, that God has actually spoken. Um, here's what I mean. You, you go on vacation and, 
And, and I tell you, I will water your garden while you're gone, every afternoon. If I say that to you, then you can make some judgment as to whether I have been faithful or not. If, if I do water the garden, I've been faithful. If I fail to do so, then I've been unfaithful. But if you go out of town and, and you and I, we have no interaction, I didn't say I'd water your garden and you never asked me if I would, um, there'd be no way to judge whether I've been faithful or not. And, and so the fact that here we're seeing God is called faithful is telling us he has spoken to us in scripture, he has made promises to us, and, and we can make this judgment that God is faithful because he has done everything of which he has said he will do. We then learn of two attributes of God in verse 6. The first one is his righteousness, and it's compared to the mountains because mountains are so big they cannot be moved by any human means. And uh, the point here is that um, we may not always see it, but it's true that God always does what is right. Uh, the other attribute here compares God's judgment to the depths of the ocean. It's amazing the day we live in. You think about how far the Hubble Space can see, and yet how much, how little we actually know about the depths of the ocean at this point. Uh, it's mostly unknown to, to us. And, and what's wonderful about these attributes of God, all of them, is that, that even the wicked in the world, those who reject God, they, they get to experience also some measure of God's goodness through these attributes. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Uh, the idea is, is often called common grace. It's this idea that, um, that this kindness from God makes the rebellion then, you know, of the rejection of God by men and women who are enjoying all his good gifts even more despicable. Um, the presuppositional apologist Cornelius Van Til, if you don't know what that word means, don't worry about it. Um, some guy who defended the faith. Uh, Cornelius Van Til put it this way, he has this illustration, he says, the non-Christian needs the truth of the Christian religion in order to attack it. As a child, it needs to sit on the lap of its father in order to slap the father's face. So the unbeliever, as a creature, needs God, the creator, and providential controller of the universe in order to oppose this God. Without this God, the place on which he stands does not even exist. So verse 6 then closes with this statement um, with a statement that's not about eternal salvation. I know every time we read the word saved or uh, in scripture we tend to think that's what it's about. Uh, it's, it's a broadness though of, of God's goodness to, to every creature. And then for the second time in this text, David speaks of God's steadfast love there in verse 7. Here he's giving this image of God uh, of taking refuge under the wings of God. This is a common image in scripture. Uh, it comes from the idea that birds will hold their youngs under it. I looked up the picture. I posted it on Facebook. You might have seen it. Um, it's, it's really neat to see just the way the birds will hold these, their young underneath them. I, I never knew they did that. I guess I'm usually chasing birds when I see them. Um, but it's a, a glorious image here, and it's one that's all throughout Scripture. You know the story of Boaz and Ruth. Uh, Boaz welcomes Ruth to Israel. She's just left this unbelieving nation, and she comes over, uh, and, and he points out to her that um, by living in the shelter of God's wings, that's the way she's come to trust God. Uh, we see it in many of the Psalms. Psalm 57 uh, has this image as a prayer being said, and it says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Psalm 91.4 tells us, He will cover you with his feathers 
and under his, wing, uh, under his wings you will find refuge. There's many, many more uh, of this image over and over again. I want to draw our attention forward in the New Testament where uh, then the Lord Jesus uses this, this image actually as he's mourning for the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's not one of the things we, we quote of him often, but uh, Matthew 23, verse 37, uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and, and you were not willing? See, the refuge, the refuge that all men and women need is found under the protective wings of our Heavenly Father. We then see this, this idea here of, of, of abundance in here, right? So one's the protection and now there's a, an image of abundance in our text of God's house, of this, this feasting and this, this drinking. You can, you can picture it. And, and did you notice there in verse 8 that, that this feasting is in the present tense? It's, it's life now and we sometimes forget that. Not, not just the future. I mean, we are looking forward to a feast with, with Christ that is going to be so wonderful, but sometimes we look forward so much that we forget of all of God's uh, abundant blessings, even right now. I know that word is one of those loaded words, abundant blessings, but it's true. All the goodness. It's a good reminder to us that, that every wonderful taste that has ever crossed your tongue has God at its source. In fact, the very fact that there are taste buds on your tongues to enjoy things is because God has designed it such way. The perfectly grilled steak, the fresh strawberries, the ice cream on a warm summer night, all of it, you know, all of it's part of God's creation that is enjoyed by all men and women, even if they will not acknowledge that the Lord has given it. How often do we miss God's good gifts? You know, we tend to focus on, on what's wrong with the, the world. Um, a child is, is born with a deformity, and, and that's terrible. And, and we know that that's sin in the world. That's the result of that. And, and still, we, we, you know, we want to ask God, how can this happen? How can you allow this to happen? That's a fair question to ask. Yet, the other part's the one I wonder about. When a, a few billion children are born healthy, we're not crying out, why, God, why? Why are you so good to us, God? Why is this? You know, there's, there's food on our tables. And I hope that when we eat, we, we pray, not because God requires it, but because we're thankful, we're really uh, amazed at what God has done. And, and yet sometimes I think we're not amazed enough. It's, it's like that bit by Louis C.K. <clears throat> I don't condone most of what he's done. I looked up something else and I regretted it. Uh, but he had this one bit on some, some late show that was so great. Um, he's talking about this guy on an airplane <clears throat> and how he's complaining that there was a delay on the runway and the Wi-Fi doesn't work. And, and, it, and, it, and his point is, this man should be so amazed right now by the miracle of flight. And, you know, put it in some perspective. You're, you're in a chair flying in the sky hundreds of miles an hour, and you should just be amazed. And here you are complaining. Christian, enjoy God's good gifts with a thankful heart. And I mean that. You know, we, we really shouldn't feel guilty when we're enjoying the pool or a concert. You know, we should be thankful for the sun and, and the coolness of the water and, and for the, the gift of music and the skill that's been given to musicians. Be thankful for the good gifts of God. Enjoy them. You see in, in verse 8, you see that word delights. Um, Ryan's got the Hebrew back there, so he'll be able to see this. Uh, it's translated from the Hebrew word Eden. 
You know this word. All of you know this. You don't even have to be Ryan to know this word, you know? Uh, the Garden of Eden. You translate that in your head already? The Garden of Delights. Kind of weird, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's always good for us to remember that God is not against pleasure. He's not. God invented pleasure. And after making man and woman, he placed them in a garden that was so full of wonderful delights that he named it the Garden of Delights, the Garden of Eden. Well, you know, we need to also remember that it was sin and not God who ruined the garden. And the other is true, too. It's God and not sin who is restoring the garden. God's not against pleasure. He's against sinful pleasure. We should be too. And so, yes, you know, we should reject sinful pleasure, but also encourage and approve of the good pleasures that are part of God's good gifts for his children and others. And maybe look to God, not our culture, to know the difference between those two. That's the distinction there. Verse 9 then speaks of God as a refreshing fountain of life and the source of all truth. <clears throat> um, we know that hopefully by experience as well as from Scripture. Uh, and then verse 10 begins this last portion of the psalm. And uh, up to this point, David has been praising God for what he's already received, what's already true in the world. Everything here is, is true at the moment or in the past. And, and now David is, is seeking God. He's praying for future needs. Primarily, he's asking God to continue to love him steadfastly. We need that. And he's asking him to continue to be righteous. You know, God, keep being who you are. Uh, and you may have noticed that he's placed these two conditions on these requests as he prays for them. Uh, the first is that it would be received by those who know God, and the second that it would be received by those who have an upright heart. In other words, not the wicked, as he's been comparing this with. Uh, verse 11 shows us then the struggle that David has that most of us can relate to. He's, he's asking God to keep him from being arrogant. He's asking him to keep him from being prideful. I mean, that's an ongoing prayer for, I think, everyone in this room on some level. And he's asking God also to protect him so that the wicked who act against him do not cause him to doubt or to seek refuge somewhere other than under the, the, the wings of the Lord. And then finally in verse 12, 12 should encourage us when we see this because there is wickedness in the world. We can't deny that. As soon as you walk out those doors today, it's not going to take long before you observe wickedness in the world. You know, five seconds on the news and you're sure of it. Um, it can be disappointing when you see wickedness prospering or seeming to go unpunishment. And, and this should be an encouragement for us here because in verse 12 there is this vision of the future where justice is given to the wicked. It says, there, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. We are to, to label, labor for justice. We, we want to be working for that. But even when our efforts fail, when we don't see it happen, we can rest in this revelation that God will indeed set all things right. There is comfort in that. So that's our, our last verse. What do we do with this psalm? You know, we've been going through these psalms this summer, and some of them are a little weird, especially uh, as we're not just selecting, you know, the... Uh, the prime ones that we know so well, Psalm 23 or 51 or 119, things of that nature. And so you come to one of these and you think, well, what do I do with this? Well, for starters, we've got to realize that it, it shows us, you know, particularly these first four verses, that there is this slow traverse into being completely wicked. 
doesn't happen overnight. There's a, a process. And this psalm can help us evaluate whether we recognize any of these characteristics in our, ourself. You know, do you, do you hear the whisper of temptation towards evil? Do you hear that? More importantly, do you, do you listen to that? Or do you fight it with the, the loud, bold voice of the gospel that reminds you that, you know, God's steadfast love for you? Psalm 36 also makes this keen observation about the wicked. We've already looked at it a little, but it says there is no fear before their eyes, right? Man, that's a powerful statement there. I, um, I've got this terrible habit. I, I change Bibles all the time. It drives my wife nuts. Um, I'll find myself wanting a, a different one, like primary Bible. I, I want something that's small enough I can take with me everywhere. And then I want notes in it, so I go back to a big one. And then that's too big, so I go digital. And then I switch to some other real clean layout. And I don't know if anyone else does that, but it drives me nuts too. Uh, <clears throat> but I go back and forth. And so it's always this interesting because you kind of get to see yourself at different stages from the notes and things you write in these Bibles. And so um, about six months ago, I came back to this big old Bible. I wanted paper and cross-references. So uh, I haven't used it in about 10 years. And I was, I was reading, and I was reading in Romans 3.18. I quoted earlier because it quotes from Psalm 36. And, and written next to that verse was this, this question to myself. Is there fear of God before my eyes? Ten years ago, I'm asking myself this question. Is there fear of God before my eyes? You know, do I understand his holiness? Do I understand his authority and his, his power? Do I, have this, do I have a proper reverence for God? You know, when, when sin presents itself, do I care what God thinks? Does it even cross my mind? Is it more of will I get caught? Or is it this sense of what does God think? You know, it's this, this question of have we become indifferent to God? shrugging our shoulders and caring very little. And it's such a core question because that's where we see the wicked person begin this descent, right? Into this, this hole of full-fledged wickedness. And, and so we need to ask ourselves this question, but we also need to know this, right? It's not just are we on that, where are we in that? But no matter how deep in the pit we might find ourselves, we need to know that the only way out is to be rescued by God. It's kind of like the, the young child that sees a tree with a low, a low branch and begins to climb up the tree, only to find, after climbing for a while, that, that suddenly they can't get themselves down. Uh, suddenly they realize, I, I need to be, to be rescued. I need to be rescued. And, I, and that's the only hope that we have as well in our lives, is, is that at the hands of God, we will be rescued in what we call the grace of God. See, we need a redeemer, and, and God has given us but one redeemer, and that redeemer is Jesus Christ. That's the point of 1 Timothy 2.5, which tells us there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus. Isn't that glorious? I mean, you read a psalm like this, and you can really become worried about where you might be. Christ can rescue you no matter where you are in that. And so then, what do we do? I you know the other questions. What do we do if we, if we know that, that we're trusting in Jesus? That's our profession, our confession. And we know it's true, but, but we're also concerned about, about where we are in regards to fearing God. You know, there's this 
this indifference that seems to sneak into our lives and it can be frustrating and disappointing. Um, I, don't, I don't typically look to, to presidents for spiritual wisdom, but uh, I'll make an exception. Uh, this goes way back to the 1800s, have you? Uh, on March 30th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln uh, gave a, a, a speech, and it was a, a speech, and in the speech he's referencing Americans, and, and here's what he said. He said, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserves us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own, intoxicated with unbroken success. We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God who made us. And then he called the people of the nation to, the, to a very biblical response. And that's why I share it with you here. He, he calls them to humble themselves before God, to confess their sin, and to pray for mercy and forgiveness. So if you find yourself, if you read this, and you find yourself drifting towards the way of the wickedness in any way, I mean, the only response is that we humbly go to God, confessing our sin and asking for, for mercy and forgiveness in the name of our our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and here's what's more glorious than we can imagine. God will forgive. God will restore us according to his steadfast love. You need to know that, that when you go to God, this reverent, fearful God, that he is waiting, ready, and willing to forgive us in the name of his, his Son, Christ. Let's pray. God, we, we pray just as the psalmist does in Psalm 90. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Lord, you know each and every one of us can be arrogant and prideful. And each and every one of us is capable of being wicked. And so please help us. Keep us from arrogance and from squandering our lives with wickedness Instead, we ask that you draw us ever closer to you so that we would find satisfaction in all that you are for us this day and tomorrow and every day after. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.